This 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 is the Larry Hardesty show on 98.7 ESPN. It is a simply gorgeous afternoon to talk a little sports and why should we not start with baseball? Because that's what's happening in this town. We have two of the best, dare I say the two best teams in Major League Baseball. We got them right here in the Big Apple. Oh, by the way, a little later in the show, we'll be joined by Leger Ducible. Yes, I know that Jet Media Camp just ended. And yes, I know that some of you are curious to see what happened. So uh, SNY analyst Leger Ducible will break it down for us a little later before we leave you at 3 o'clock here on 98.7 ESPN. Let's begin with the Mets. Now, last week, when I joined you, when I joined you, there was a little uh, apprehension in my voice, right? There was a little apprehension, not at the Mets, not at what the amazing Mets were doing, but at that team behind them in Atlanta. Because at that time, they had won, like, what, 175 in a row? And they had cut the lead to five. And I'm looking and I'm saying, okay, for a Mets fan, let, let's be honest. Yankee fans get on Mets fans, oh, the little brother, blah, blah. We don't, you guys care about the Yankees. It's Atlanta. That's who we really are concerned about. Atlanta is our kryptonite. Atlanta has been the team that has taunted us. Atlanta has been the team that's, that's just nagged us to death. And we knew, Mets fans, coming into this season that, okay, they lost Freddie Freeman, but... They have still a very talented team. And you saw what they did last year. They came from nowhere. They came from nowhere. All right? To win the World Series. So they're always in the back of our mind. They're always in our rearview mirror. Atlanta is always an issue. So for them to go on this streak, last week I was concerned. Now, once again, I'm not concerned at the Mets because I believe that they will continue to play, maybe not at this stupendous level, but there'll be a level where they will win series. They're not going to lose a bunch of series. I don't see this team, knock wood, going on a long losing streak throughout the season because they're just too talented, and I think the pitching's really good. And I know that in another month or so, whenever the trade deadline comes up, if there's a need, you know, Steve Cohen will tweak it for us. So I'm not worried. But nevertheless, you want your team to continue to play well. And they did that yesterday. And the Mets continue to win. They won against the Marlins 3-2 on the backs of Taiwan Walker. Almost seven innings of great pitching and a two-run Francisco Lindor home run. Walker, this is and this is the Walker that we saw in the strike shortened season and in the first half of last season. All right. He retired at one point, 18 straight batters, struck out nine, surrendered over two, only two hits in a run. And Francisco Lindor's mom was at the stadium yesterday, was at City Field. And she saw her little baby hit a two-run home run. Couple of hits. Nice. Great day. Great day. So we may have to move her here because she arrived in the Big Apple Friday. Since then, he's driven in six runs with his mother in attendance. He's got his total to 53 on the year. So he went through a little slump, 
but he's back. And the one thing that you like about him is his defense is pretty consistent, right? Okay. So let's go back to yesterday. Buckshaw Walter. Now this team is playing extremely well. This team is is the class of the NL East at this point, right? So the Met manager was asked if there's any milestone stats that really matter to him. Here's what he said. No, it's that one at the end after 162. I, I mean, I've always looked at seasons in monthly increments. You know, I look at a, a month and the way our schedule falls, and I put some uh, some, th- some things that we need to reach. Um, but I'm, I'm more of a – and we've got one thing in our locker room that is uh, the four teams we're playing in our division. We've got to figure out a way to be better than those four teams. It's as simple as that, and then we'll – that's going to be a big challenge. And we'll try to stay focused on that, and we're able to win two games against a division that's capable of winning all four games here. Yeah, there's no question about it. And the division – now, look, uh, and the Marlins have played well. Let's not throw shade at Miami. They, they've played better than a lot of people expected because their pitching keeps them in games. They just have to find a way to get some runs. Their pitching is, is decent. Uh, the Phillies continue to do well since the, since the departure of Joe Girardi. You know, I don't want, I don't know what Rob Thompson is selling down there, but it, it's starting to work a little bit. The question for them is always not going to be their offense; it's going to be their their pitching and defense. That's going to be the big thing with them because they just don't field well. And of course, Atlanta is Atlanta, so uh, you know Buck Showalter is correct that that's the main thing you focus on. You focus on the teams in your division and your division first. And the rest will take care will take care of itself. All right, Tyron Walker. I mentioned earlier that he is starting to round into the picture that we saw early part of last year. Strike shortened season of twenty twenty. He says, <laughs> "I'm feeling good." Yeah, I mean, I feel like when I'm when I'm healthy and um, I'm going good. You know, I I feel like I'm a pretty good quality starter. Um, you know, and. Early in the year, I wasn't getting the strikeouts I wanted, but like I said, now I added the slider. Uh, I've been pounding the strike zone with my fastball, and the command's been there, and you know, obviously the splitter too. So, um, you know, I expect to see a lot more strikeouts as uh, as the year goes on. Um, you know, and I just feel really good right now. And he's pitching really good. And as long as he continues to pitch like that, all because you know, Tyler McGill's back on the IL, so you really need the guys on the back end of this rotation to you know continue to do well. And he's a guy that you really expected to do to to bring you some things. And what's interesting is, you know, uh, Carrasco was a guy that, uh, you know, I I've, I've said it before. I didn't have a lot of faith. Didn't know what he was bringing to the table. He's been phenomenal this year. So, all in all, once again, we've heard the story over and over again for the fact that the Mets have not had their number one starter, their ace for the whole season, and their number two starter for a couple of months, seems like longer, (laughs) Uh, the fact that they have continued to do what they've been able to do is just amazing. Now, I know that I want Francisco Lindor's mom to continue to stay in New York and, and, and coming to games because of how he's responded. I might be a little selfish, though. Let's see what Francisco has to say about that. I want my mom to stay too. Um, no, nah, she brings the best out of me for sure. So his uh, whole entire weekend is for her and my family. So, and I'm I'm also getting good pitches to hit. So it works. And he's not missing those good pitches, okay? Because just because you get good pitches to hit, don't doesn't mean that you always connect on those good pitches. Off to the phones we go. Spike is in St. Pete. 
Happy Father's Day, Spike. You're up first on ESPN. Well, happy Father's Day back to you. Uh, I wanted to talk Mets and Yankees, but uh, you got my train of thought off here on the uh, Father's Day event. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was 13 years old. It was 58, 58 or 59. And my dad had a big Buick Roadmaster. He came home and he took me up to the old garden. And the uh, Knicks were playing the Sixers. They weren't the Sixers. I think they were the Warriors still. And there was a game before, you're going to love this, was the New York football Giants Mm -hmm. playing the Harlem Globetrotters. Wow. And on the Globies was the Big Dipper. Wilt was played in 58-59. He had come off the triple overtime loss at Kansas to North Carolina. Uh, I think it was the NIT then was bigger, but that's not the point. So Wilt signed to play with the Globetrotters. And we had great seats. And, man, I, I, I'm you know 13 years old. And the Nick games after this, so I'm all ready, you know. And the football giants came out. And in those days, Frank Gifford was my guy. Mm. And we didn't, they didn't have any of this apparel. So I remember I got yelled at, too. I got, used to have those gray uh, sweatshirts you pulled over. And if you turned them inside out, the, it was gray outside and the inside was white. And I took a, a magic marker, there's a name, and put 16 on it. And, oh, did I get yelled at for that. <laughs> but, but, you know, that was the beginning for me of, of wearing stuff. Because Gifford was a, this handsome guy. He was a triple threat, you know, about his background. And, you know, his post career, mm-hmm. you know, he just had a great career, you know, broadcast, terrific guy, terrific guy. I met him, I shook hands, just great. This, and a, just a Hollywood type of guy, you know, and he was a hell of a player. In those days, they didn't call them, they flanked him back, you know, all it's mm-hmm. just things changed. Still play yeah. football. Yep. But I saw the Big Dipper. Wow, that had to be and amazing. I, 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 I'm telling you, I... I <laughs> It's it's like I guess if a little kid meets the Hulk or something, you know. And there's no real Hulk, but and 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 he was just the kindest guy. And I met him years later up at the the, the camp at the, in the mountains with uh, Garfunkel and uh, you know that whole five star. But um, you know, and he gets short shrifted now with this new thing with this Steph Curry. Enough of this, man. It's 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 please. It's LeBron, Kareem. And Michael, and then you fill in the rest. You're never going to get me off of that. So call me the old man on the lawn, and I would tend to think you're in my camp. Uh, yeah, I, I am. It's hard for me, and, and, and we get closer and closer, Spike, as we do this, and I want to let you get your baseball thoughts in real quick. But it, it, it's sure. hard for me to separate errors, okay, because yeah. I, I, I don't want to penalize – um, I don't want to penalize guys who played in a certain era because other players weren't there. You know, and that, and that tends okay. to, we, we can't be prisoners of the moment, but, you know, listen, Will Chamberlain was great no matter when he played. So for people to say, well, yeah, but who was I, around I, when Will played? I'm like, he still dominated. I, I can't hold that against him because he didn't play today. That's not his fault. No, I, I agree with you, and I'm biased because I went to high school when Kareem did. So okay. I saw him in that now closed, there's Powell Memorial, I believe, yes. down 14th mm-hmm. so, yep. Yeah, I believe it's close. And, and I, I, you know, they changed the rules for three guys, you know, right. with the lane. And listen, I'll yeah. make it my baseball foot. I want to take the time. And again, have a wonderful, outstanding day with your beautiful family. Thank so you. I'm talking to the other Beaver guy, and he says to me about the Mets. 
and he uh, he's 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 worse with the Mets than I am with the Knicks. I mean, he, so he says, I don't know with Carrasco. I know he's a cancer survivor. Every time he pitches, I, and I asked Jacob Perry, who's a Mets fan too, about yes. the closing with Diaz, with Diaz. Right? Do you still feel comfortable with Diaz? Yes, and thanks for the phone okay. call, Spike. I do. I do. I feel comfortable with him because I I. I believe that Showalter has found the best way to use him. And listen, he's like any reliever. There's going to be a day where he's going to disappoint me, but he's better than he's been. And so that's where I have to, I have to look at it. He's, he's been great. I think he had maybe one bad outing that I can think of off the top of my head. But for the most part, maybe two, but for the most part, he's been lights out. So, yeah, I'm, he has won. I think Gordon asked me this last week. He has won my trust. So for the moment, I'm very confident. I don't, when the trumpets start, I don't get nervous. Before I said, oh, no, not the trumpets. I don't, I'm okay now when the trumpets go. Because I like how, what mindset he's in. And I think his confidence is higher than it's been since he's been here. And I believe that his stuff is a little better than it's been since he's been here because the fastball the last time I saw him, he was like 102, 101, 102 and consistently. And that has not been the case since he's been here. Antoine's in Jersey. Hey, Antoine, you're next on 98.7. Well, happy Father's Day to you. Thank you, Antoine, to you and your dad as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. My favorite sports moment that I got the chance to share with my dad was we got to go to the 94 World Cup when it was here in the States. Wow. Um, when they had games at Giants Stadium, my dad used to own a travel agency, and we got VIP passes through American Airlines, who were one of the major sponsors. And when we got a chance to take part in it right before the match started, we got a chance to meet some you know, regular people, some big wigs from Americans and from other industries. And one of the cool things, ironically, I got a chance to do was I got a chance to meet Governor Christine Todd Whitman. She wow. was there. I have a picture taken with her, and she actually signed my VIP pass. Oh, cool. That's great. And Yeah, and my father still has it to this day. Still has the pass to this day, hanging at the house, and actually did develop the pictures, too. And that's still at my parents' house to this day. And both my parents are from, are from the Caribbean, so a lot of sports here in North America, they really don't have that much understanding. But the one sport that I know they do love is soccer. Mm-hmm. And having a chance to do stuff like that with my dad was, I think, by far one of the coolest things I ever had to do. And also the reason I think I also like the fact that it was also the World Cup. 94 was a great year because the Rangers won the Stanley Cup, and mm-hmm. I graduated high school that same year. So wow. every time I look back at that summer of 94, Graduated from high school, seeing the Rangers win the cup, and sharing a great soccer moment, you know, sharing a great moment with my dad, you know, getting to go to the World Cup. And how many people can say they got a chance to do that? And now with the World Cup coming back to mm-hmm. the States, even though it's also going to be in Canada and Mexico in 2026, and they're going to have games at Man Life, I'm looking forward to sharing not only that World Cup moment with my dad again, but I'm hoping to share that world come with my kids. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. That's great. Thank you for sharing that memory with us, Antoine. That's a great memory. That's a great memory. On Twitter, at Hardest to ESPN, at ESPN NY 98 underscore 7 FM. And of course, as Antoine just did, at 1-800-919-3776. Uh, we asked if you could share with us the best sports moment you remember with your dad, granddad, stepdad, whomever it is. Uh, at Gary King Jr., Mets 86, at Uncle's Apartment. 
people called the cops on the four of us, saying it sounded like a party of over 100 people. <laughs> That's great. Uh, at Cyrus DeVille, 89, the Barry Bond single-season home run chase. Wow. At uh, It's True, my first NBA game sitting courtside with my dad at MSG watching the Knicks versus Elvin Hayes and the San Diego Rockets. Elvin Hayes, who uh, many people remember from being with the Washington Bullets, who teamed along with once with Wes Unseld to win the championship there. Uh, also with uh, a young man from uh, Mount Vernon, Gus Johnson was on uh, a couple of those uh, couple of those uh, those teams. But uh, yeah, and Phil Chenier. Oh, the list goes on and on. But. Um, yeah, Elvin Hayes, and that's before the Rockets went to Houston. The San Diego Rockets. Remember, Elvin Hayes, a big star in Houston, uh, in college at that time. And uh, at James nine nine zero six five three one six. Happy Father's Day to you. Enjoy your show. Thank you, James. Uh, listen, we, and this is not to defend. This is just reality. Our job is to sit here and give you our opinions, what we think and what we what we believe and through our experiences, through information that we have, through numbers, through conversations, whatever it is, is to make sure that we give you our thought process about how we think things are and how we think based on the information, how we feel about it. And so uh, we are, we, me, are going to be wrong more than we're right as our Colleague Chris Berman says, that's why they play the games because you never really know how things turn, right? You never can, you never can guess certain things. So it was, it was interesting to hear players admit, okay, that they saw something that spurred them on because most players, you guys know, I don't have to tell you, I don't listen to the noise. All the noise is outside the locker room, the clubhouse. I don't hear that. I don't go on social media. I don't know what goes on. Even if they don't go on social media, it doesn't mean they don't know what goes on. Family members call them. People tell them, do you see what happened? Do you see this? So a lot of athletes do and are aware. And I applaud Steph for saying, hey, listen, that was a challenge for me. That that I wanted to prove something. And when you think about it, even the head coach, Steve Kerr, was like, I didn't expect this. <laughs> I mean, look at where the team came from the past couple of years. Look at the injuries. Two years, no Clay Thompson. Okay? Most of last year, no Steph Curry. Draymond Green in and out of the lineup the past couple of years with the back injury. Okay? How are these young players that you're recruiting going to make that transition? And what you give Golden State credit for is their ability to retool on the fly, right? And they have some young players who are really going to make a noise. And it's, 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 it will be interesting to see how much, how much more leeway that Steve Kerr will give the younger players like Kaminga, uh, the younger players that they have on this team. How will, will he start to incorporate them more so that when you get to the postseason? you now have enough information that they have entered, as Gordon likes to say, the circle of trust, All right, That they've entered the circle of trust of Steve Kerr, that he's confident. Okay, I can put him in and he's going to hold the rope and the rope is, he's not going to let go. So that's what's going to be interesting because it's, it's, 
it's tough to repeat. All right, it, it's not easy. There's a, everything has to go right. Injuries, you have to. You're gonna have them. You got to recover. The other teams, it's when you play them in a lot of cases. So that's going to be the challenge for them. Steph Curry, MVP of the finals. How's that feel, young fella? What does just this mean to you to finally be a finals MVP after everything? Forget that. We champs. Why are you starting with that question? We got four championships. God is great. The ability to be on the stage and play with amazing teammates. I guess a great Boston Celtics team that, you know, gave us everything to try to get to the finish line. This one hits different for sure. All right. And how about ring number four, Steph? It means we won. It means we uh, took advantage of the opportunity getting back here. And I mean, I hear all the conversations. I hear all the chatter. We hear all the chatter. At the end of the day, it's about what we do on the floor. I ain't got to talk about it. Just got to go do it. And uh, this one hits different. This one hits different for sure. Well, it's different because, once again, they weren't the favorites. Okay, that's why it was different. Because you didn't know how Klay Thompson was going to perform when he got back. Nobody knew. Steph got hurt before the playoffs. Okay, he got hurt. So a lot of people in the first round of the playoffs, a lot of people, is he going to be able to come back? And I will say this, the lack of depth scoring-wise consistently was surprising for this Laker team, I mean for this Warrior team, until Andrew Wiggins woke up and Jordan Poole woke up because those were the performances that many of us who thought Golden State would beat Boston expected to see because that's what we saw during the regular season, right? That's Those are the performances we saw. Those are the performances, the cutting, the movement, uh, how that offense goes, the ability to hit the three the way they do, to beat you in transition, to push the basketball down, to be able to run points off in, in, in bunches and to be able to just wear you out at the start of a third quarter and almost cruise in the fourth quarter. That's what we expected. And while we acknowledged and felt that Boston was a tremendous team with a lot of talent, great defensively, uh, two younger versions, kind of, of the Splash Brothers in their own right, in Tatum and in Brown, but for them, just not understanding how important execution is, especially late in games. Okay, not understanding the importance of respecting the basketball in every possession late in games. That's what they still have. That's what I think they will take away, Boston, from this championship. Because defensively, they were good enough. All right? Offensively, in spurts, they were good enough. But they couldn't close. And that's, that's the toughest thing to learn is how do we close? How do we put this team away, especially when it's a veteran club, especially when it's a team that's been there before? Because they know. And they know that weakness and they know what they, they need to do. And they, and they rely on each other more because they've relied on each other before and they have produced. And so you're looking at guys looking to Jason Tatum, okay, is are you taking us now? Are you taking us now? And he did his best. He tried to go to the rim on several occasions, didn't get the call, got a turnover, was stripped, 
got fouled maybe, missed the free throws, got, you know, then decided, okay, let me make my other teammates better. And then he didn't get enough support in that sense other than really uh, Jalen Brown to consistently put points on the board so that they could free things up in turn for him to pick his spots and go. So these are the things that, uh, you know, that Boston will learn. And hopefully, they'll have a chance to get back. Hopefully. Because everything has to go right. You you don't start the season at the Eastern Conference. Don't start the season representing the East in the NBA Finals. Tim Legler was on the Michael K Show and weighed in on Steph Curry's legacy and the Warriors' future. I started just spitballing the other day. I was thinking about this, and I pretty quickly you're up in you're like seven eight, like automatics. Now you got like a serious debate here with like maybe nine ten through like fifteen. He's in the category. He's in the discussion. I do not think it's definitive that you would put him there. This was the crown jewel of his career to this point, getting this team across the finish line because this is unprecedented what they just did from this standpoint. Normally, you don't have that kind of a run for five years. Have it break up completely completely remake your supporting cast and then get another chance to start a run. And I think that's what we're seeing here. This isn't a one-off. They're going to win another championship, at least one. They may win more than that. I think these guys showed me enough this year to know, number one, they know they can get it done on this stage and, and the toys really showed in this series. More than that, they're going to be better. That's Tim Legler on Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors. And once again, how will the younger players incorporate themselves into this understanding of what warrior basketball is? And if they are able to do that, listen, Steph's going to be around because he's a shooter. Steph's going to be around. <laughs> Clay Thompson, theoretically, could be better next year. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> could be scary. Mike's in Carmel. Mike, you're next on 9870 ESPN. Hey, good afternoon, Larry. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, Mike. Thank you. I uh, just wanted to share uh, a story, a Father's Day uh, story. One of the probably the greatest day of my childhood I had with my father. Okay, great. It was uh, 1973. Uh, Mets are getting ready to play the big red machine in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm starting fourth grade. I'm in a Catholic school in the Bronx. About a quarter to 11, my father comes to pick me by. The uniform's gone. I'm in my jeans. I got the Congress chucks on. We get out to there. Walking through the parking lot, I see some money on the ground. So I stand there. My father turns around. What's going on? I said, I found money. He doesn't miss a beat like it happens every day. He bends down to tie his shoe. Lift of 52 20s, 90 bucks. Wow. We go into the game. So every inning, what do you want? What do you want? You know? Mets go on. It was the game where uh, Buddy... Uh, Buddy Harrelson and Pete mm-hmm. Rose had their dust up out there. Yep. Mets go on, win the game. We're driving back home now, getting up on the Deegan. My father tells me, uh, listen, I wasn't going to say nothing, but if the Mets hold on, uh, I got World Series tickets. Oh. my fe- Larry, my feet didn't touch the floor. <laughs> we get back up to the apartment. My mother opens the door. Right away, I'm yapping. Hey, did you see us on TV? Were we on TV? And all I do is my mother has this big smile. I see a look and pass my shoulder to my father with the greatest look of love I've ever seen. And I was like, all right, you two. I disappear, go back to the, go back to my room to start going through the program and thinking about the game. 
And like I said, for a nine-year-old kid, probably the best day of my childhood. Mm. That's great. Fantastic. That's, that's yeah, great. and and then we went to we did go to we saw Game Five with Matlock and the uh, the Mets went up three to two. Mm-hmm. We know what happened after that, but yeah, great yeah. time with my father. Wow, Mike, thanks for sharing that today. Thanks for the no, phone absolutely. Call. Thank you for giving me the chance. No Have problem. a great day, Larry. You too. You too, Mike. One eight hundred nine one nine three seven seven six. We asked to be a Twitter, and of course, as Mike just did on the phones at one eight hundred nine one nine three seven seven six. What's your best sports moment you remember with your dad, granddad, or stepdad? A bunch of you have been weighing in on Twitter. That's we acknowledge a couple of more of you. Herbie two thirteen Pete says, watching the Rangers win the Stanley Cup in ninety four. He's the reason I am a huge Ranger and hockey fan today. At uh, Transversio Leo, watching Sonny Liston and Muhammad Ali on my grandfather's lap when I was about four or five years old. Wow. Uh, at Thurman 15 underscore HOF, my first Yankee game with my dad, he predicted who would get on base or be out. I was in awe. Of course, when I got older, I realized the 50-50 odds each at bat helped a little bit. Uh, also, and and uh, Thurman 15 underscore HOV also added happy Father's Day to all the dads and father figures in everyone's life. You can weigh in as well. What's the best sports moment you remember with your dad, granddad, or stepdad? At hardest to ESPN at ESPN NY 98 underscore 7 FM. Uh, when we return, we'll talk a little basketball with you. Uh, Woj has indicated that Kansas City, I mean Kansas City, Sacramento, is thinking about making a move at number four. And if you're like me as a Nick fan, you've been seeing these uh, James Ivey comments, Jaden uh, Ivey, rather, and uh, how the Knicks really, really want him. So I want to get your thoughts at 1-800-919-3776. Is this the way you want to go with the Knicks? Plus, you can also weigh in with your Father's Day memory and uh, I'll share you. I'll give you my thoughts as well. This is the Larry Hardesty Show on ninety-eight point seven ESPN. Rob's and Merrick. Hey, Rob, you're next on ninety-eight-seven. Larry, my man, happy Father's Day. Thank you. Same to you, Rob. So we actually have something in common, Larry. My very not only first Met game, but like first memory, a cold October night in nineteen seventy-three. John Matlack on the mound, Rusty Staub, three-run homer, mm. Wayne Garrett, two-run homer, Mets defeat the Oakland A's game four of the 73 World Series. That was, and you know, that Met team, uh, Rob, with George Stone, 12-3 and three on that team, and you mentioned John Matlack, and of course Tom Seaver, and Kuzman was still there, so you, you know, it was... You had a lot of hope that you could might squeeze a win out there, and and the the funny thing about that team was Rob that people forget. Some people forget uh, that was the first time I saw Willie Mays in person. Yeah, like, that was kind of sad to see him. Hit. It that was, was in a way, in a way it was, in a way. You know what? I tell you this though, Rob. If they had the DH in the National League at that time, he would have been perfect. He would have because he still because he, he still had a little he still had a little pop in the bat. <laughs> You're making me picture that scene when played like with his arms down on the ground, like he's praying to uh, Allah or something. Remember yeah. that? Yeah, like he's safe. He's safe. Come on, he was safe. It was. Uh, oh, it was great. It, it was. It was. It was a special moment with that team, Rob. And uh, listen, uh, 
You know what? Hey, they didn't deserve to be there. You no, know, they that, didn't. That was, the, that was Bud Harrelson getting his butt kicked by Pete Rose, yep. and we beat the big red machine. Yep, wearing we the Superman like, shirt uh, afterwards. Yep, that's right. Yeah, and and, and Rusty would oh, hurt the shoulder. My favorite Met ever. He was my favorite Met ever. He was, a great, he was a great guy. He was a great guy. Thanks for the memories, Rob. Thanks for checking in. Welcome, Larry. Enjoy the day, buddy. I appreciate you as well. Frank's in Central Jersey. Hey, Frank, you're next on 98.7. Hey, how you doing today? Good, Frank. What's up? Good, good. Years ago, I had gone out to the stadium with my uh, with my twin sons and my dad. Mm-hmm. He was up in age a little bit. I was sitting in the stands there. You know how the peanut guy comes around with the peanuts, and he tosses them, you know, like half an aisle up or whatever. Yep. And uh, so my dad said, hey, peanuts, peanuts. Not thinking on anything. And the guy just starts tossing them three, four, five bags of peanuts. <laughs> and then he comes over to my dad. And uh, obviously looking for payment, my dad looks at him with this like dumbfounded look on his face because he didn't realize it. So I just, we all just laughed, and I happily handed the guy the twenty five dollars for the peanuts and shared them with everybody. And I, I'll always remember that as a funny thing. That's great. That's great, Frank. I, <laughs> I kind of can see your dad's face right now. I got and peanut peanuts are how much? Twenty five dollars, Frank. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> hey, I, I tell you what, I bet you he tossed them about five, six bags, and my wow. dad just kept catching them and, and handing them out. <laughs> so, and Take it was funny. My sons and I, we always talk about that. That's great. That's a great memory. Thanks for sharing that with us. Have a Thanks, great friend. day. You too, my friend. 1-800-919-3776. What's the best sports moment you remember with your dad, granddad, stepdad, or father figure? At Patrick Eagles 15, the first time he took me to see, um, oh, the first time he took me to see Crystal Palace um, soccer, okay, at Selhurst Park. Very nice, Patrick. Very nice. Very nice. Keep weighing in. Love to hear the stories at 1-800-919-3776. Now, Nick fans, here's the issue. There's always, everybody, there's rumors and rumors and rumors abound about what the Knicks are going to do with this draft that takes place on the 22nd that you can hear right here on 9870 ESPN. It's Thursday night. You hear that right here. And there's a lot of talk about this young man, Jay Nivey, who is one of the top point guards in the upcoming draft. Now, he is expected to go maybe number four with Sacramento. Sacramento, as you know, has a plethora of point guards. (laughs) Okay. They don't need another point guard. So there's been a lot of rumors that the Knicks are putting a package together to try to move up to number four to get Jay Nivey. Before I get your thoughts, Nick fans, on whether they should do that at 1-800-919-3776, listen to Woj on NBA Countdown on Jade on Jay Nivey and what the Kings might do with pick number four. Because, like, they could keep it. That number four pick that the Sacramento Kings hold is very much in play. There's a lot. There are a lot of teams uh, trying trying to get deals done with Sacramento so they can move up to select Jaden Ivey. That's teams close to them in the lottery. Detroit, Indiana, who are uh, five and six. 
the New York Knicks at 11, Washington Wizards at number 10, and even some teams outside uh, of the lottery. Listen, Sacramento's asking price is going to be significant to move in there. I think they see this as essentially a four-player draft. There's a drop-off after four. Monty McNair, their GM, you can expect him to be on the phones in this next week as we get closer to Thursday's draft. And uh, if they're going to move that pick, I think they expect they're going to get a lot in return. But Jaden Ivey is certainly a point guard that uh, among several teams in the lottery and out who'd like to get their, uh, you know, who'd like to get at him. You know, they've already talked to Sacramento. They'll continue to do that here in the next week. All right. So career-wise, Ivy has played in 59 games. He started 46. He's got a 14.9 points per game, 4.3 rebounds per game, 2.6 assists per game. And he shoots about 32, 33% from three-point range. Last season, 17.3 points per game, 4.9 rebounds, 3.1 assists per game, and his three-point shooting went up to 35, a little over 35%. So obviously, last year was a really good year for him. Is this what the Knicks should do? Should they try to make a deal and move up to pick up this young man and try to keep the team going in the younger direction, although they will probably have to give up a couple of players and maybe some draft picks that they have going forward? Or should they just keep the 11th pick and try to do and package that 11th pick for a veteran player? What should the Knicks do? 1-800-919-3776. And also, when you call about the Knicks, you can share your best Father's Day memory with us as well. Sacramento has the fourth pick. Woj, in another Woj bomb, mentioned from his sources that Sacramento is listening. They're willing to make a deal for that pick. We know the Knicks need a guard who can pass and shoot consistently. We know that uh, you know they have they've had they've struggled to try to find a person like that, and there's so many of you who have always who always talks about building through the draft, right? Who wants the team to not go out or not wait for a free agent or try to, especially after last season with that experiment that didn't work, unfortunately, although it would have been a great story had it had it worked, uh, with Kemba Walker coming back here to be. You know, a guy who could shoot, but not your prototypical point guard, but a guy who could pass and score, that, you know, that would work. Same thing with Derrick Rose. It's not your prototypical pass-first guy, but he's a guy who can, you know, pass and score. Uh, so it's clearly that's what the Knicks need on this team, and they've needed that for ever. Should they make that move and try to package, move up to get to make a deal to possibly draft Jay Nivey, or should they just keep their 11th pick and package it to do something else? Or should they just keep it? Should they keep it? Should they move up? Or should they trade it and package it to try to get a veteran? What are your thoughts? 1-800-919-3776. Matt's in the Bronx. What's up, Matt? You're next on 98.7. Hey, Larry. How you doing? Happy Father's Day. Thanks, Matt. Same to you for the plies. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, it does. Um... I just, you know, hearing the stats that you uh, rambled off there on uh, Jaden Ivey, it sounded like he was scoring and then he didn't put up, like he had more rebounds than assists. That doesn't, you know, sound like a typical pass-first guy. I know you said they may need more scoring, but I think that may take away from Barrett's development and, 
I don't know, just because he has a point guard next to his name uh, and he's the best foot, is that really a best fit for the team? Well, we'd have to find out, Matt. That's a good point, and, and thanks for the phone call. The question's going to be, and, and I think that I think he's not going to take away from R.J. Barrett's development because R.J. Barrett really has made it. This is, if anything, we learned from last season, this has slowly become R.J. Barrett's team. I think the year before, you could say clearly it was Julius Randle's team. This is closer to R.J. Barrett's team with the development that he's had. Now, it, it doesn't mean that Julius Randle and R.J. Barrett can't coexist. It doesn't mean that. And I think it would take a, a guard to be able to know when to pass and know when to find his own shot. And you're right. From the numbers I did mention, his scoring went up. As a matter of fact, everything went up his second year. His scoring went up, his rebounding went up, and his assists went up. And yeah, he had more rebounds than assists, but you know, I'm not. Some of that depends on the style of play you have from the, the the program you're with. Some of that is who's on your team. If he was the number one scoring option on that team, then that's why his numbers would be skewed that way. So the question would be, how would how would he fit in your scheme? Okay, how would he fit? And that would be the question that. Uh, Tom Thibodeau and the Nick front office would have to figure out an answer. Would he be a guy who could give you some points? Rebounding, yes. And and be able to find guys in key moments. Okay, do, is he that type of player? We don't know what he is at this level. We've seen him in college. In college, maybe many people rate him very high. Athleticism, excellent. Ability to score, excellent. Three-point shooting, uh, it went up. It's not great, but it went up. Uh, so, you know, and, and of course, that's, you know, the college three is a little different from the NBA three. So there's, there's questions about his game. We're not saying he is the perfect player. What we are saying is drafting him, he would probably be better than any point guard you have on your team right now. And that's what you need to do is improve. That would be a concern. All right? That's what you need to have happen is for your guard play to improve. And quickly has shown that he can do some things. I mean, he's not, I'm not adverse to, it's not like I'm saying, well, we don't really have anybody that can play the point. I would prefer uh, quickly to not play the point because for me it took away from his game. And for me, watching him, and it doesn't mean that he can't evolve, and it doesn't mean that, and I know he played both at Kentucky, but just for me, it just seemed like last year was, it was a tough balancing act for him. Okay? I lost his scoring aggressiveness because he was focusing to prove to everybody, yes, I can play the point because I did it in college. Yes, I can play the point for the Knicks. And because of that, I think it messed with his shooting percentage. I think it messed with his scoring. I think it messed with his head. All right? It took away from some of the scoring that the Knicks needed coming off the bench. Especially in a year where they didn't get a lot of consistent scoring. So I kind of want to take that away from him and 
you know, once again, he was free to be the off-guard guy when he played along with Derrick Rose. And Derrick Rose would give him the ball sometimes, and Derrick Rose would let him bring the ball up, and Derrick Rose understood, and Derrick Rose was there to help assist him in making the right plays and talking to him, and, and look, this is what you do. This is where you go. This is where the ball should be. This is how you get there. Right, he didn't have that last year on the floor. Okay? So, you know, that's the concern you have if you're a Nick fan. Who's going to be that guard? that's going to be able to run this offense to the point that, yes, they can pass, they can facilitate, but they also can score when you need a basket. That's important too. And, of course, we have to figure out how good this defense is because <laughs> that, could, that could influence his playing time. Let's be honest. We know how that guy is, that head coach. And I respect that. I do. But I'm just, you know, I'm concerned. I'm concerned with what's going to happen with this team at the point. Because, and the reason why is very simple. We constantly talk about this. It's not like they don't know. They know. I mean, they know. It's happened Year after year after year after year. It's just frustrating. Other teams can find point guards, and the Knicks just keep whiffing. And all we hear about the stories of point guards who are on other teams or guards who are on other teams that should be here. Steph Curry, Donovan Mitchell. It goes on and on and on and on and on. And as a Nick fan, I'm just telling you, I'm tired of hearing it. <laughs> tired of hearing it. I want some I want some action. <laughs> Father's Day edition of the Larry Hardesty show here on 987 ESPN. And when I talk Jets off the field, I you know, Rich Samini does a great job for us at ESPN when when I want to talk to a former athlete who's been in the trenches. I pick up my phone and I call for Leger Doucible, SNY football analyst. He joins me here on 987 ESPN. Happy Father's Day, my friend. How are you? Happy Father's Day to you. I'm doing well. I can't complain, Larry. It's, it's been a minute, man, since we've been, been on air together. So it's good to hear from you. It's good to hear your voice as well. Okay, Jets had a mandatory mini camp earlier this week. And Leger, mm -hmm. you know how these mandatory mini camps go. Uh, but it's so interesting because this week, other than Zach Wilson, the main story was alignment. Makai Becton uh, coming back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all the situations with him, the injury last year, ending up being out the whole season, comes back. Uh, and when you look at him, Leger, you know, the questions about him being in shape, let's face it, let's be honest. He, he looks kind of the same way he did when he left. He's got six weeks to get back in shape. What was your thought process as you saw him uh, step up and speak to the media and seeing him working out, doing some light workouts with the trainers on the side? Yeah, um, from everything that I've heard um, from inside of the building, right, he's right on schedule to, to be ready for training camp. Um, I knew coming off the injury he came off of, he wasn't going to do anything in the spring and OTAs and, and mini camp. Um, he's motivated, right, Larry? He knows. He's very self-aware, Makai Becton. He knows what this year entails, right? This is his third year. This is the year in the NFL where they can – 
you know, they usually can tell if you're going to be a truly a guy at this level of football. So he knows he's been injury prone the first two years. He knows there's pressure on him. He knows most likely he'll be playing right tackle instead of left tackle this year. So trust me, Makai Beckton knows he's the new father. So I, I know all that's running through his head right now. But I would not be surprised if we see the best Makai Beckton that we've seen in his NFL career this year. And that would make the Jets very happy because he showed you flashes in the in his rookie year, uh, Leger. This Correct. was a guy who, if you're a running back, I want to run behind him. That's what you're. That's what you're saying. And on the other side of the football, where you where you start at, you don't want to see that guy coming at you. Uh, I mean, I, I fear nobody on the football field. Let's go ahead and put that out there, Larry. First and <laughs> foremost, but yeah, this is this is a guy, right? That you that the Jets wanted to be their staple offensive tackle. He's going to help in his own scheme. I think he's actually better suited to be the right tackle because in this scheme, the right mm. tackle is more of their mauler offensive lineman when it comes to the run game. So, honestly, you know, he, he, he talked about being with Elijah Vera Tucker. Well, now with Lincoln Thomason going over to left guard, he gets to be with Elijah Vera Tucker anyway on the right side of the offensive line. So, like, this is what he wanted in the first place anyway, to pair yourself with Elijah Vera Tucker, and now those two guys can be on the right side and really dominate in the run game. What does Tomlinson bring to this offensive line, Lejeune? First and foremost, experience, right? He's coming from San Francisco, where I believe he spent five years there. Um, same offense, right? Michael LaFleur came from San Francisco with Kyle Shanahan being the head coach. So it's very similar offense. There are some different nuances here and there, but it's a very similar offense. So you got a guy that knows his offense in and out. So, you know, him learning the playbook and, and different terminology is not going to be an issue because he was in this offense before. He knows it you know, like the back of his hand. And you got a guy coming in with, you know, NFC Championship experience and a guy that went to the Super Bowl. So you talk about bringing that experience, bringing the right guys into the locker room. I know that's big for Joe Douglas and Robert Sala. They want to make sure that they bring in the right guys into this locker room. Lincoln Thomason is a pro pro. Elijah Vera Tucker is going to be able to learn from this guy, really help him develop in his young career. And he's a mauler, too, as far as, you know, guys putting hands on defensive linemen and linebackers when running the football. There's a reason why they brought in a guy like Lincoln Thomason, because they want to run the football. They want to take the game out of Zach Wilson's hands. Um, that way, you know, they can run the ball, make it easy for him, and they'll give him the keys once they feel like he's ready. But, you know, don't make any bones about it. This team is going to run the football. Well, you know what, uh, Leger, that's not a bad that's not a bad recipe because it helped them get to back to back AFC championship games, running the football, uh, you know, minimizing mistakes on offense and making sure your defense is able to make some plays. Hundred percent, and and that's what you know. This Michael Four offense is built off of. Yes, it's about Zach Wilson getting the ball out of his hands as soon as that back foot hits. But trust me, they want to start by running the football, then use play action passes, take them shots in the middle and also, you know, take those shots down the field. But it's going to be predicated off of them running the football first and foremost. And that's going to be, you know, Zach's best friend, being able to run the football. All right, that's Lizay Doosable. He's my guest here on the Larry Hardesty Show on 98.7 ESPN. Lizay, let's talk about this receiving core while we're still on the offensive side. And this is a substantially better receiving core potentially than what Zach Wilson had last year, especially at tight end. The depth at tight end is striking. Oh, 100%. And, and that's monumental, too. We talk about 
you know, the offensive line addition to Lincoln Thompson. Let's talk about the tight end position, right? I didn't know the Jets knew what a tight end was last year. <laughs> now they bring in three guys. You talk about Tyler Conklin, a guy that can play inline tight end. Can, you can stretch him out to the receiver position. Has some flexibility to be in that yo position right off the tackles, off of the tackles hip. C.J. Uzama, Super Bowl experience from the Cincinnati Bengals coming over this year. A guy that can be a safety blanket for Zach Wilson over the middle of the field. And my guy, Jeremy Record, who I really loved and followed at the Singer Bowl, this guy can do it all, right? He can be in line. He can be in the backfield as an H-back. He's a guy that will get after you in the run game as far as blocking. And even in the pass game, he's a really good pass protector. So, you know, they wanted to make sure that Zach Wilson was comfortable, these tight ends will help, because all three of them were blocking tight ends first, and they became viable pass catchers later, right? You know, Jeremy Ruckert at Ohio State, they have so many receivers, Larry, that he didn't really get the ball that much in that offense, but he was a surefire blocker. This guy's an athletic tight end, can separate from guys. Uh, Tyler Conklin started off as a blocking guy. C.J. Uzama started off as a blocking guy. So all three of these tight ends are so versatile, and that's going to be monumental in this Mike LaFleur offense, and it's going to only help Zach Wilson. No question about it. And then when you look at the wide receivers, you got Elijah Moore, who who showed you a lot in, in, before he got hurt uh, last year. And then, you know, you got this uh, the rookie Gary Wilson out of Ohio State, who can who can, from what I've heard, who can flat out catch the catch the football. It's going to make some folks a little nervous uh, at that at that wide receiver position. A guy like Corey Davis, who had some issues last year, had the injury. He's got to take the next level if he wants to get some playing time. Yeah, and Corey will get some playing time. He's going to be a two or three number number two or number three receiver on this team, right? He's a viable catch guy, a guy that was a number two guy at the Tennessee Titans. He, I look, I look for him to bounce back and have a big year. He was banged up towards the, the back half of the year, didn't really play. The guy that I think that's really going to take off is, is Elijah Moore. I think he's going to be the true number one guy for this offense. You saw Michael Lafleur towards the back half of the season before Elijah got hurt, really, you know, move him around in all three receiver positions, even put him in the backfield sometimes to really, you know, hone in on that skill set that Elijah Moore has and create those mismatches versus linebackers and safeties that have to guard Elijah Moore out of the backfield. To me, Garrett Wilson is going to be a really good number two uh, NFL receiver. To me, he was the most polished receiver coming out of this draft. I think he's going to be a really solid number two. can go high point the football is a really tough receiver guy that can go up and high point it and he's ultra competitive right so this guy not only goes to high points the ball and and treats the ball like it's his when it's in the air he also you know enjoys blocking in the run game now he's not the biggest guy but he's a physical guy so he plays a lot bigger than his actual stature so yes you love to get the depth and then getting Braxton Berrios back was monumental for this offense one of Zach's favorite favorite teammates on the team. Got a real rapport with him down the stretch last year in the season. And everything I've heard about Denzel Mills, I know we've been waiting for this guy to really take that next step. Everything I've heard out of campus, he's looked really good. He's in the best shape of his life. He put on some more muscle mass, and he's really, you know, honed in on his playbook. I know that was part of his issue last year as far as uh, him knowing all three spots. Now it seems like he's really got a grasp in year two of his playbook. So I, I love the depth that the you know, Jets have at the receiver position. They look good. Before we talk a little defense, Leger, I watched you and Bart Scott and Willie Cologne lament over Zach Wilson a lot last year, although at the end, after the injury, he did show some improvement. What do you expect from him? A lot of people talking about he could be, or he's going to make the biggest impact second year of all the sophomore quarterbacks and so on and so forth. I trust you. What do you think? Yeah, yeah I think he's going to make a, a monumental leap 
because this is his second year in this offense. I think Zach realized down the stretch when he actually started progressing and playing really well for the Jets, you know, especially in that Tampa Bay Buccaneers game, is that he does not have to turn down the first open receiver to try to get a bigger play down the field. I think he realized after being hurt and sitting and watching guys like Mike White, Josh Johnson, and even Joe Flacco throw for 300 or near 300 yards in the game just by, you know, getting the ball out of their hands and throwing the ball where it's supposed to go in the read system, like knowing your reads, knowing where the ball is supposed to go, and then when that back foot hits, letting that football go. I think sitting back and him watching actually really helped Zach Wilson. I know you always want your players on the field so they can develop, but sometimes the quarterback has to look from another view, right, see another quarterback have success in that offense. That way they could be like, you know, I could take parts of this game, and I realize now I don't have to turn down, you know, that, that, that five-yard hitch. I don't have to turn down that, that you know, that drag route coming around to, you know, try to hit that flare route down the field. I can really let the ball go. Get it in my playmaker's hands, and they'll make plays for me. So I think that was beneficial to Zach. You never want to see your quarterback or any player get hurt. But I think him sitting for those few games and watching, you know, Josh Johnson and, and three quarters throw for over 300 yards, Mike White throw for over 400 yards <laughs> in the win versus Cincinnati, and then Joe Flacco nearly throwing for 300 versus the Miami Dolphins. I think that helped Zach Wilson in his development. And everything that I've heard out of camp this year, that he's taken onus of this program, right, and took him in a leadership position as far as he's traveled, you know, all around the U.S., throwing with his receivers, trying to get that rapport ready. And I like what he's done physically to his body, right? He got banged up last year was a little light. Um, we saw the mobility late in the season. I think that, you know, Mike LaFleur will throw in at least one or two quarterback runs a game, especially in the red zone. I think he felt like he needed to get, you know, a little bit more body mass on his, his body to with last his 17-game season. And I think he did exactly that, and he looks really good coming into training camp uh, this year. Lejay, let's look at a little defense. I can't talk to you and not talk some defense. Now, that wouldn't be fair. <laughs> the line. Uh, you got some guys yeah. coming back. Carl Lawson's coming back. Vinny Curry's coming back. And you've got the young guys, you know, the, the John Franklin Myers who got the, was rewarded with a contract and played really well in spots last year. What does this, this defensive line have to do to take that next step and to, you know, be good against the run? Because that was the thing that we're a little inconsistent with last year. First and foremost, Larry, they got to stay healthy. Yeah. That's what they got to do. Like, that was the major issue for this team last year. You talked about John Franklin Myers, a guy that, to me, um, you know, they didn't really get to see his whole skill set because he, um, you know, likes to rush inside on third down, but wasn't able to do that as much because of the injuries on the outside at the end position. So, like, they they struggled with that. Um, he was a guy – he was a guy that, um, you know, uh, played had to play more in because – Bryce Huff got hurt. Carl Lawson got hurt. So he wasn't a guy that could um, kick inside on third down like they really wanted to. So, um, like, him, you know, being able to stay healthy himself because he was banged up a little bit as well. And then the, off, the defensive line having a pure rotation now. Bryce Huff coming back from injury. Jacob Martin, who will have a specialized, you know, package on third down situations getting Jermaine Johnson in the first round is monumental. Then Carl Lawson, right? You could add him into, you know, as a free agent in this group as well, because he was a guy that, you know, the Jets, you know, shoved out a lot of money for, but then they didn't get an investment on that because he got hurt so early uh, during training camp. So he didn't play any games last year. So now you're talking about the depth and the rotation of the defensive line. 
I played it in this system, Larry. It's mm. built off the, the depth and the rotation and guys going balls to the wall for four to six plays. Then you bring in a whole new group that's fresh, and they get after the quarterback as well. And with a young man like Sauce Gardner learning the ropes and, and making your secondary a little deeper, that's with the guys you got back there, it's it's promising. It's promising, right? Oh, 100%. And I mean, you talk about the, the defensive line. Look at the makeover in the secondary. Like, Jordan Whitehead is a guy that I tab the Jets to get in the offseason. I just love the guy, the way this guy plays football. He plays it the right way, right? With a lot of effort and physicality. That's what Jordan Whitehead is. Um, the Jets really struggled in the run game. You brought that up, Larry. But having a guy like Jordan Whitehead, especially in week one versus the Baltimore Ravens, is going to be monumental because of his tackling, his prowess, his physicality and his versatility at the safety position. You could play him in the box, Larry. You could play him in the slot. You could play him at deep middle safety. So he's going to be monumental for this team. DJ Reed is the ultimate competitor. Like, the Robert Sala knows this guy going back to when San Francisco drafted him, and then he ended up going to the Seattle Seahawks, kept his eye on him. He was another guy I tabbed to just to get because he knows the system. It's played in the system, and it's comfortable in the system. And I know a lot of people are talking about Sauce Gardner and his size at like 6'2", but – do not take anything off of DJ Reed now. This guy is, is a competitor now. He will hit you in the run game. And even though he's only 5'9", has a 38-inch vert, I believe, he can go up and get the football. So, I mean, it's a total makeover, not just on the D-line, but in the secondary as well. So, it's for the Jets to make some noise on, on defense because we know that's Robert Sala's calling card. Did you not think he was going to make a, a, a lot of changes in that, on that defense to make sure he has the thoroughbreds in the stable to be able to make some noise on the football field? No question about it. And I'm just curious, Leger, uh, I got just a couple of more questions for you. Uh, I'm curious, uh, what did what did Robert Sala, first-year head coach, what did uh, uh, Mike LaFleur, first-year offensive coordinator, over the year, we, we always talk about what, what the players learn from their first year, right? The rookies learn their first year. What do coaches learn? Yeah. And what's that, that adjustment like for them when they go into their second year? Yeah, it's just like the player, man. Um, you usually have your biggest growth from year one to year two. I would say it's the same thing in coaches, right? It's a lot different when you're a coordinator, you know, or you're a position coach. When you're a head coach, right, you have to have your, your, your pulse and handprint on all three phases of the game. Little things you didn't have to worry about as a coordinator, you have to worry about as a coach as far as, you know, the players on your team, you know, certain situations they may be going in in their life as far as, you're making sure everybody is good in the building. Like, now you're in charge of everybody, right? You're not just in charge of your defensive staff. You're in charge of, you know, the coaches on special teams, on offense and defense. And then you got a staff, you know, that, that you're in charge with in, in the whole building. So, I mean, I think you have to just find your groove and find it how to, to be a head coach in your way. And I think Robert Sala was finding that in the first year. I think going into year two, he just seems a lot more comfortable, a lot more confident going into year two. And I think he's the right guy for this job. Like, I'm I'm really excited about this season. I know it's a gauntlet of a season to start with, with the schedule. But honestly, I, you hear players talk about Salah all the time. Like, they gravitate to him. They gravitate, gravitate to that energy he brings, right? They gravitate to him being the same guy. You know, players players can really tell if a coach is full of it right away, right? Mm-hmm. But Robert Sala never changed who he was, even though last year was a rough season for the Jets. And I think you earn a lot of respect in that locker room from the players. When you're constantly able to be the same guy, no matter what the record is, you come in with that same energy and same attitude, I think players are going to gravitate to that regardless. And as you mentioned, this conference has gotten better 
Leger, this is not going to be an easy year for the yeah. Jets. Nah, yeah, it's, it's a tough AFC. I mean, I don't know who the schedule makers were. They ain't do the Jets <laughs> any favors, favors, but that's football, right? The Jets have had almost a wholesale change as far as personnel, right? So they've gotten immensely better. So, I mean, the schedule is not an excuse. Your, your job is to go out there and compete and win games, right? So at the end of the day, that's what you have to do no matter what the schedule is. Now, I've never seen a schedule where you play one whole division the first straight month of the season, right? The AFC North, the Jets have an AFC North game in four straight games. I've never mm-hmm. seen anything like that. But, hey, that's what the schedule makers wanted to do. No matter who's on the schedule, we had a coach used to say, they are nameless and faceless. You go out there and go play whoever's on the schedule. And as you know, Leger, it's not who you play. It's when you play them. And sometimes you get a yeah, – get... I mean, yeah. Yeah, sometimes you get a, a really good team early yes before no. they get rolling. You know, yeah. sometimes you get you, you have a chance to get them before they get, you know, squared away. A hundred percent. You always want a team that is perceived to be really good. You want to get them early, right? Because teams usually hit their stride after week four. And the real good teams, you know, when they're playing their best football, usually late December, early January, and they won enough games early enough where if they hit that, you know, if they hit – hit their strain at the right time, and, 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 and you're starting to, to elevate at the right time, that's what you want going into trying to make a playoff run in, in late December and January. So, you know, the Jets, again, start off with a gauntlet, but, you know, the schedule kind of eases up now. Again, this is the NFL. Anybody can beat you any Sunday, any Monday, any Thursday night game, any Saturday night game. But, you know, the Jets are able to, to, to squeak out a few wins early, man. The schedule looks favorable for them down the stretch. No question about it. Leger, listen, man, thanks for a couple of minutes on this Father's Day. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for having me on, Larry. This is the Larry Hardesty Show on 98.7 ESPN.